So I'm sure that's a deeply unfamiliar passage of the Bible for most of us. Never, never been to a wedding where we heard that one before. Hey, look, I realise this will be the third time that I've prayed personally during this service from the front. Um, uh, and it has been our policy as a church since we started that you can never pray too much in a church service or in general. So uh, look, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us today from your word. That as we approach this precious part of scripture, that you would reveal, reveal yourself to us and lead us deeper into who we are in you as we see you more clearly. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you, um, if you got a Bible, please do flick open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, if you'd like to have a Bible in front of you, there's a stack of them on a chair back here. There's no shame in standing up in the middle of the sermon to go and do that. There are other reasons that would be shameful, um, but that is not one of them. For instance, no dancing in the sermon. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I just felt like I had to justify saying that then. You know. um, now, uh, before, we, before we dive into looking at this, uh, I just want to say, if, if you go on, um, do you guys know Book Depository? It's a, it's a website. You buy books from it. It's one of the world's largest bookshops. It's an online bookshop. Um, on, on Book Depository, if you search um, for books uh, on the incredible, incredibly popular subject of self-help, right? Like, don't we hear, there's a lot of books on self-help. They get a lot of airtime. If you search uh, Book Depository for books on self-help, you'll get about 11,500 books. It's a lot of books, isn't it? If you search for books on the subject of marriage, you get about just, 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 like, just shy of 70,000 books. If you search for books on, on anger, funnily enough, I thought anger would come behind marriage, about 75K, you know? That's, we're, in, we're, we're people who, who realise at some level that we've got something we need to deal with, don't we? Um, if you search for books on parenting, and like, I'm not talking like go into the category, I'm just like write parenting into the title thing, right? And, and you get about 163,000 books on parenting because most parents have a kid and then realise, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, if you search for books on love, there's about 700,000. That's a lot of books, you know. You know, that's, that's more than 250,000 more than, say, the fantasy, uh, fantasy fiction genre. You know, whole genre. About 250,000 books less than books on love. Love is something that everyone wants, everyone needs, everyone is looking for. Yet the very nature of what love is, is debated, isn't it? Like, like we, don't, we don't grasp it super well. Uh, uh, is it, now it's, dis it's disagreed on. Is it a feeling? Is it a commitment? Is it a noun? Is it a verb? If you're into cheesy Christian music in the, the 90s. Um, is love a thing which is had and given or is it, is it an action which is taken? Uh, and purely by the variation of opinion around love. Like that's, that's scratching the surface of a very deep disagreement, right? But purely by the variation of opinion out there on love, the very nature of love, one thing we can glean is that love is something about which the people of our world tend to understand very little of. 
Today, uh, we're coming to some of the most famous words ever written about love. And as you can imagine, in 700,000 books, that's up against some competition. 1 Corinthians 13 is probably one of the most familiar passages of scripture to every listener. Even, even someone who's, who's never been to church, but just been to a few Christian weddings has probably heard 1 Corinthians 13, or, or Christian-ish weddings even, um, has heard 1 Corinthians 13 read out more than once in their life. And yet I want to suggest this is also one of the least well understood parts of the Bible. In fact, let me go further. If you have gone to church your whole life, right, which, which many of us have, not all of us, but if you've gone to church for a large part of your life, heard this passage like a thousand times at a thousand weddings and church services, there is every chance that you haven't really seen the fullness of what it's saying to you. There's, I want to say, there's, there's two ways that we tend to read most often this, this part of the Bible, um, and, and neither of them is wrong, but both of them are incomplete. So first, we kind of, we can read it, we can tend to read it, this is probably the most common one, right, as, as, as the beautiful love poem of 1 Corinthians 13, um, about how lovely love is. Yeah, love is patient. Love is kind. Isn't love great? Yeah, we all break into a round of all you need is love, and we're done. <laughs> and you know what? That's not wrong. Love is great. Like, like it would be, it would be ridiculous to say otherwise, right? But, but that's not fully the point of what's being said here by Paul either. You see, we, we can't really get this chapter. We can't get 1 Corinthians 13 if we don't get it in its context. And you might remember last week, the context here is this kind of three-chapter slab of the book. It's a big section of this book that Paul gives to this, where he's addressing the fact that this church he's writing to is misusing the gifts of the Spirit. The Corinthian church was elevating some gifts above other gifts, uh, saying some people just weren't needed in the body of the church and so on. But just getting a bit of the context like that can actually lead us into what I would say is our second incomplete way of reading this, right? Kind of, if the other one's the, that's a beautiful love poem, this is the, nah, it's a rebuke approach. You know, um, we talked about pendulum swings last week. You might recognise one happening there. Uh, the point isn't that love is great. The point is that you're not loving, right? That's true too. I, I'm sorry if that, if that comes as a little bit of slap. We're just tearing off that band-aid early in the sermon because we've got other places to go. Um, it's important that we see that. It's just not complete that we see it like that. I mean, it makes sense though, right, that... Uh, as Paul speaks to Christians who are pridefully elevating some gifts above others and, and, and in so doing, elevating some people above others, right? Um, that What does he say? He says these words that we often think are so pretty and so lovely but are actually a little bit sharp on the edges, um, maybe a lot sharp. Um, 
you know, and take in mind, this, it, what it seems from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is that they were particularly elevating the gift of tongues above other gifts. Paul, Paul comes back to that a bit, especially in chapter 14, um, but also right here at the start of this chapter. And, and what does he say he, to, to people who were elevating tongues above, above the other gifts? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I don't know if you've ever been around a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal that's like, you know, gongs can be great, you know, in, in the right place, put it in the right song. I am um, the danger of, of, of illustration from your childhood is that I grew up around here. But um, when I was growing up, I was in a school band um, and, and like we had a drummer. Our drummer was awesome, by the way. He was, he was really, really good. Um, we had another band member who took it upon themselves to occasionally go back and pick up a drumstick and like whack the cymbals midway through the song and 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 this person did not know how drums worked as it turns out i was, I was chatting to someone else recently who was saying that uh you know when people are trying out for bands they often you know you often get one or two who will try out on the percussion because they were like, they're just hitting things right i can do that um and, and this person was in that category right and it was painful it was it was it was harmful to the ears and to the taste of, of music and 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 like paul saying if i speak at the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love that's me not not just not just pointless painful um but it's not just tongues that he says this about paul basically just lists the gifts he doesn't lift, list all of them but like we can just see what he's doing here right he's saying if you have any of these things and don't have love what does he say he says you know if i have prophetic powers if i have all faith if i have knowledge if god has specially given me knowledge but i don't have love he says he says i gain nothing but he says something even more than that he says i am nothing like way to undermine those who are saying my gifts are what make me important and amazing and set me above you and paul says hey uh, you're not loving them do you know what that makes you nothing even painful like this ding 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 like he couldn't be more blunt in a way And, and I heard one person put it this way once, and, and I'm paraphrasing someone here that I heard a long time ago, and I can't remember who it was actually. Um, but, and, and, and I think they're right, there's just more. Um, they said, Paul's saying, love is patient, but you're not. Love is kind, but you're not. Love doesn't envy, but you're envious, aren't you? Love doesn't boast, but look at your boasting, Corinthians. And... And there's something in that, isn't there? Like so on and so forth. Like, like I said, this isn't the whole of the message here, but 1 Corinthians 13 should, in a way, hold up a mirror to us and cause us to see the answers to the question, am I loving? Is love something that marks me? And, and cause us all to look at that and eventually go, not perfectly at the very least, maybe, maybe sharply wrongly, Maybe I'm doing this really wrong in some places, just as I hold this up. Am I using the gifts that God has given me in love for my fellow believers and in love for, for others, for those who is calling into his kingdom? Is that, is that how I use what God's given me? You know, that just doesn't just need to be gifts like prophecy, like, like tongues, you know. Remember last week we saw, we saw gifts like helping 
We saw gifts like administration. Am I using everything that God has given me in love? Let's stretch it a little, right? Because in, in one sense, God's given us everything. God has given you, well, has God given you a house? If you have a house, the answer is yes. Has God given you a car? Has God given you a dining table? Has God given you time? Has God given you money? Do you use those things in love for those who's, who he's given you in your life to love? One thing to be careful of here is that we don't, we don't carry this rebuke element into places that Paul doesn't go. We talked about this last week, the, the pendulum swing, right? We go, we go um, you know, this, uh, well, if the gifts without love are pointless, then all we need is love and we don't need the gifts. You see where we've got, like, uh, do you see where we jumped? That's not what Paul's saying here at all. The implication is that using the gifts with love is of great benefit. Uh, Using them as God gave them to be used is a beautiful thing, a Christ-honouring thing, an important thing in the church, in the body of Christ. Because he intends to display Jesus through the love of the church. So when we use the gifts in love... When every member of the church is expressing the gifts that God has given them, many and diverse as they are, for the good of the whole, we show the world who Jesus is. So we shouldn't swing away from the gifts. We should swing towards using them in love, do we see? But, but it's funny, like the, the rebuke way of reading the chapter usually involves, in my experience, kind of a, a look over the shoulder at the guy who's reading it as, as the, the beautiful love poem, um, and, uh, you know, with a little bit of disdain, you know, like with a bit of, how badly are you g- not getting this, you know, which, which let's, that's a little bit ironic when you consider what it's about. But, but I want to suggest there's actually a good reason for that first take that we see so much beauty in this chapter. This, this passage is rebuking to its original readers and to many after them, and probably to many of us today, right? But the point isn't to look at it, realize how terrible you are, and then try to do better next time. I hope you know that's not how the Bible works. Uh, and, and, and especially that's not how First Corinthians works. Do we remember? Do we remember how this book works, right? There's, there's three parts in every part that we come to in this book that we've talked about like a bazillion times by now across 12 or 13 chapters. There is always in every part of it a situation, a gospel principle that Paul brings into that situation, and then an application that draws out of the gospel. And if we go, you know, you're bad at love in the way that you use the gifts be better at love, which part have we missed? You're bad at love, situation. Be better at love, application. Whoops, we skipped the gospel, right? We're missing the gospel principle if we read this that way. And I want to suggest that to read 1 Corinthians 13 rightly and fully, you need to see that it all points to Jesus. Otherwise, you may as well skip. You've missed the point. 
1 Corinthians 13 is beautiful because at every point it is a description of the love ultimately that we see in the Saviour, in Jesus. And so the message here isn't, um, is, it's not just, isn't love great? It's not just, you're not doing love right, do it better. The point is that we should see the love of Jesus in all his splendor towards us. And that as we see his love for us and for one another, that we would be changed by his love to love better. Do you see the difference? We're not, we're not changed by looking at ourselves and going, man, I'm rubbish. I mean, it's an all right thing to see, but we're not changed by that. We're changed by looking at him and seeing, man, isn't he beautiful? Isn't his love for me great? So what we're going to do, we're going to dwell for a moment in these middle chapters, uh, middle verses of this passage, verses 4 to 7, where Paul describes love. And it's funny, he never says the word Jesus in there. And yet, and yet, if you're a Christian, I feel you can't read these verses and not see Jesus in there. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christians, isn't this describing our Saviour? Aren't these the ways that the life of Jesus perfectly reveals love to us? Isn't he love? Personified, like, 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 like if you want to know what love is, even better than 1 Corinthians, don't you look to Jesus? See, before we can stand a chance of loving rightly, we always need to be reminded of how we are loved perfectly. Brings us back to that, you know, that principle from chapter one, right? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we look at Jesus, when we look to his cross in particular and to his life and to all that he is toward us, when we look to Jesus, we see 1 Corinthians 13, love expressed perfectly towards us. We see one who is so patient with us, even though we fail again and again and again. Have you ever appreciated the patience of Jesus? I'm led to appreciate it regularly, frankly, by my failings. Like, I know how impatient I am. For instance, you know, when my kids mess something up and I'm like, come on, you need to say sorry for that. And then like two minutes later, they mess it up again. And I'm like, oh, come on. And then, and then I have to remember that's me and he's patient with me again and again and again never-endingly patient with me so much more than i will ever be required to be patient with anyone else he's so kind isn't he have you ever considered that every good thing that you have comes from jesus that even even the hard things that happen in your life he has promised he's going to turn for good for you. So even there we can see kindness from the Saviour. You know, in kindness, not begrudgingly, he lays down his life 
for you. He doesn't envy. You know, isn't that, isn't that, like, isn't that crazy when you think about it? You know, Jesus, okay, when he's in heaven and, you know, before he comes down, we'd be like, well, of course he doesn't envy, he's got everything. What, what, what could he be envious of? And yet, like, isn't the easiest place for us to envy when we've had, but then we don't have, right? Like, like, I used to have a really nice car, now I've got a rubbish old car, and then I see someone with a really nice car and I know how comfy those seats are. And, and yet Jesus comes down from the splendor and glory of heaven and becomes a baby in a, like, 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 have you ever actually laid on straw? We picture the manger much more comfortably than it is. Um, and, and, and he lives a, a, a kind of poverty life, really. For his ministry years, he's homeless. He says it explicitly. And he goes, he dies on a cross for us. And like the whole time, if it was us, we'd be looking at the guy in the castle or even just the person who has a house, right? And we'd be going, come on, I want the comfy bed. Um, but, but Jesus is not envious. He, he gives for us. He doesn't boast about doing it either. There's not a shred of pride in Jesus. The only person who really has any reason for it. He's not irritable with us. Aren't there days that you believe... Here's, here's a lie that we fall for. Aren't there days that you believe that you deserve an irritable God? Like, in fact, aren't there days that you believe that you've got an irritable God? Where you think, surely God's looking at me angrily now, condemning me for this. And yet he's not. He's not irritable. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love towards you. And Jesus, his love never ends for you. The one in here that always catches me out, right, is that, that next one where he, where he says, um, verse 5 there, he says, love isn't resentful. Um, now, many of you will know, I'm a, I'm a great lover of the ESV translation of the Bible. Um, and, and so I take no qualms with occasionally pointing out where I think they did it wrong. Um, uh, nerd out with me for a second here. Um, when they say resentful there, the word that's actually been translated, it's four words. It's, 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 it's ulegizatai tokakon, depending on how you pronounce your Greek, right? Literally, what it says is it doesn't keep count of the wrongs. The, the New American Standard Bible, NASB, does a really good job of this. It says it does not take into account the wrongs suffered. When you think of the fact that the Bible says that all of my sin, all of your sin, all of what we do wrong ultimately is against God. And that in the face of that, Jesus comes down. He carries the weight of our sin. He was nailed to a cross and he died. When you think of the wrongs suffered by him as the nails went in for you, against like your wrongs against him and realise that he does not take them into account. Indeed, he died in order to clear the account for you. That's what love is, right? 
We're not done, but I'm just going to pause for a second here. I don't know where all of you stand with Jesus. Um, you know, many people have sat in church their whole life and just coasted, you know, like answered the question, are you a Christian? How do you know? With, well, I got baptized, um, you know, and I go to church. Um, and like, I, I, it's lovely that you go to church. It really is. Um, and, and for a person who believes in Jesus, it's, it's a beautiful and important thing that you go to church. It doesn't save you. It does nothing to save you. And, and, and what you need is to see the love of the Savior displayed on the cross and understand that he loves you and come to trust in him. If that's you today, that invitation stands open wide to believe, to trust in him, to know his love for you and come into knowing him throughout the rest of your life. Come have a chat afterwards, if you are. Don't listen to the voice that says, no, nah, it's too intimidating. That's not Jesus. Now, though, because these verses show us how we haven't loved, but also how perfectly Jesus does love us, in that way they lead us to love all the more. Do you see? The true love of God's people is always driven by the perfect love that we've received from Jesus. And when Jesus tells his disciples to love in John 13, he doesn't say, now go and love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. He's not just being like, do it this way. He's giving us the roots for the tree to grow in, the soil for the tree to grow in, something like that. He's saying, Look at my love if you want to love one another and love one another like that. The true love of God's people is always driven by the perfect love of our Saviour for us. As we see the love of the Saviour, we are led to a love that patiently endures and bears with the failings of others. Love that always believes you know, I've often wondered over those words and been like, what does it mean that love believes all things? It doesn't mean that love is gullible. What it means is that love loves so much that it longs to believe the best of the brother or sister. You know, isn't that the opposite of irritable and resentful? Longing for the best for them. Longing to believe the best of them. Love that always hopes is what we're led into by Jesus. What that means is that in every dealing with others, true love isn't mean-hearted towards them. There's a, there's a sneakiness of the devil in that, that he leads God's people, it's not that sneaky actually, into resenting one another at times. And yet, and yet, love hopes all things. We hope for the best for one another. We hope to stand before the throne of God one day together and worship him with joy together. So we hope for the best for one another in every little way as well. And, and, and that's where we have to ask, is this the love that we have for one another? Are we a people who are so radically moved by the love of Jesus, by the love of God displayed in the Son, 
that we do not keep count of wrongs against each other. That we are patient and kind and bear with one another. Do we envy? Do, do you secretly spend time wishing for something that your fellow believer has? Do you secretly wish that you were gifted like they were gifted? I've met people, plenty of people actually, like not, I'm not just thinking of one or two here who, who think that they're gifted as teachers, not because they're gifted as teachers, but because they've met people who were gifted as teachers and they thought they were so rad that they thought they had to be like them. It's envy. Do we boast? Do we, do we tend to follow the world's cues here and, and, and show off everything that is beautiful and perfect in our lives? Hold ourselves up in that way, kind of maintaining the two versions, right? Um, the popular way to do it is, is the real life version. That's, that's true of everyone, and you know, the Instagram version or the Facebook version. And like, if you're, if you're of a generation who hears that and goes, I don't have a Facebook account, or I have a Facebook account and I've used it twice, then take in mind, people did this before Facebook. It, it just looked like going to the shops and, and answering like your life was full, full together. It looked like having your house perfect when people came around so that they went, wow, wow, he, she, they have it all together. It looked like polishing your tractors <laughs> so that the other farmer knows that they're shinier than his. I don't own a tractor, don't judge me. Um, not on that anyway. Ask yourself, you know, that Christian brother or that Christian sister who maybe bothers you, who you find difficult, do you genuinely long to believe the best of them? Do you hope for the best for them? Do you act out for their best? If the answer is no, if these things are a struggle, remember, don't just go, better do better. Look to Jesus. Look to his love. Remember that you are perfectly, sacrificially, patiently and kindly loved. He isn't counting up your wrongs as you fail at this. Even as we fail to love, he's like, and I've dealt with that and I love that I have. And I love them still. Let that, by the Spirit's power, bring you to love. Um, in the final verses of this chapter, um, Paul points out this one kind of overwhelming reason, which we kind of hit a little bit during our communion today. One reason why love is the higher, the more excellent way. Why love is so beautiful and so important. He says, prophecies, they're going to pass away. Tongues are going to cease. Gifts of knowledge will cease. In fact, gifts are going to cease. Sometimes, here's an aside, sometimes people argue that uh, what Paul is saying here is that uh, in his day and age, uh, the, the gifts were given and, and that was kind of the stopgap until the scriptures were completed, you know, in those first few hundred years, uh, or maybe the first hundred, depending on who you're talking to about where they draw the line. And, and the, the, at that point, when the scriptures were completed, the perfect came. And so the partial passed away. Um, you know, um, kind of two problems with that. First, it's just not, it's just clearly not what he says. Um, I don't know how else to put that. Um, it, 
he's so clear. But second, much more importantly, is that if you miss what he really says, you miss something glorious. It's not what he says because Paul tells us when these things are going to cease, right? He doesn't, he doesn't leave that hanging. He says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now we know in part, now we see in a mirror dimly, but a day is coming when we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. A day is coming when we'll see the one who loves us face to face, he says. And like, I love the Bible. Please, please, for all it's worth, hear me, read this book, live your life by it. But even with it, I can't say that I see him face to face. I can't say that the partial things have passed away and that the perfect has come. It is so clear. But here's the glorious reality that we, that we need to see here. The gifts bear a partial revelation of something greater that is to come. They will pass away. Love will not pass away. The gifts are tools. Love is a purpose. Let me put it this way that I think will communicate all right, probably better to some of us than others, but um, when we see something of God's love revealed in the gifts expressed in the body of Christ, you know, by, by a word of knowledge, by a prophetic word, by a tongue spoken, by the helping of someone or the administration of someone, um, but through, through healing, when we see God's love revealed in that way, then we are like a person walking at night. Um, maybe it helps picture it in a shed, you know? And, and like, I know that some of us here love sheds, and so this will, this will work better for you, but, you know, chuck it in a garden if that works better for you, right? And, and you're walking with a torch, and you can shine it around, and, and you're like, wow, this place is beautiful. Such an orderly shed. There's a header, like, and, and, and it's such a beautiful thing, but we see it partly, like a person walking with a torch at night. And we see marvellous things. We see the realities of heaven. We see the realities of a new world that is to come, of a day when God will be with us fully and without sin, but we only see part of the picture. We don't see it unveiled. But one day the sun's going to rise. And we'll see that the shed was even better than Bunnings. We'll see God and we'll know his love on full display, face to face. And the torch won't be necessary anymore, right? You don't need a torch in the middle of the day. No one will need a prophecy about what is staring them in the face and, and known fully in their hearts. No one will need a word of knowledge, or will know fully everything we need to know and everything will be readily knowable to us. Healings become superfluous when no one's sick. That should be self-explanatory, right? Like, when he has wiped away every tear from our eyes and there's no more mourning or crying or pain, the former things have passed away, no one's going to need healing. 
We'll see fully, we'll know fully, like walking in the noonday sun. And, and on that day, when prophecies have ceased and tongues have ceased and words of knowledge have ceased, when all of these gifts are no longer necessary, on that day, love will remain. Faith in the things unseen will be useless because we see him. Hope in the things that are to come will be pointless because they're here. But love will simply be all the more visible. And so because we look back and we see love in the Saviour, in his eyes as he dies for us, and because we look forward and we see God's love expressed for us throughout eternity coming for us. Church, we ought to love like no one else in the world loves. Let me, let me close today with an invite. And I know I've already made an invitation. but If, if you're that person that I mentioned earlier, this is inviting you into God's love. But let's be real, this is not just speaking to that person. This is a cause to look to your life, to look to the Saviour and see his love. And if, and if you're struck by your lovelessness when you look to him, well, we're going to pray together. We're going to ask him to lead you deeper into love. And maybe you've got repenting to do with him. Maybe you've got people you've got to go to and, and turn away from your lovelessness towards them. Please do that. He'll bless that. He's with you in that. His people are led to walk in repentance all our days. Step into his love deeper. When we realise our lovelessness, our temptation can be to turn away from his love and pretend it's not there because it makes us feel bad about our lovelessness. But that's not the right move. We look to his love and we realise how gloriously it frees us from our failings and how it enables us to step into love. Would, would you pray with me? I'm going to pray that God would help us to step into living in his love. Jesus, I want to start here by praying for the person hearing this who just has not known your love, who has maybe mistaken the Christian faith for something else who has thought that it was all about following the rules, all about, all about just ticking the boxes, not doing the right things and doing the right things and therefore being saved. And yet that's not saved. That's just doing. For that person who was baptised but never believed, never knew, never knew in their heart the love of the Saviour. Lord, We pray that today they would be able to step in, that they would be able to pray, that there's no magic words, but Lord, that they would see the cross of Jesus and say, I want that. I want to come into his love for me. I want to turn away from my own efforts to justify myself. I'm nothing, but he's everything. Let his love Let his love avail for me. Let his love win in my life. And Lord, I want to pray for all of us here.
for those who walk in faith in you, that you'd lead us deeper in to who we are in you. That we would see the love of Jesus. And that in that you'd give us boldness to turn away from our lovelessness. In that you'd give us joy to love. In that you'd give us excitement to fill our tables with the lost and with one another. To care for one another, to listen to one another, to be patient with one another, to bear with one another. Lord, fill us with love towards your lost people who have not come in. Love towards the world, Lord. Give us the love of Jesus who seeks out the one. Even, even as he has to leave the many, the 99, to go and find the one. Give us your love. Make us a people who see your love so clearly that we walk in your love daily. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your love. We pray it all, Lord, in the name of Jesus, our Saviour, who loves us. In the name of our Father, who loves us. In the name of the Spirit, who lovingly leads us. Amen.